0: Chapter Nineteen Part One Of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Two This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter Toronto, Ontario March two thousand seven The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume two, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter nineteen: "Constantius, Sole Emperor." Part one: Constantius, Sole Emperor; Elevation and Death of Gallus; Danger and Elevation of Julian; Sarmatian and Persian Wars; Victories of Julian in Gaul. The divided provinces of the empire were again united by the victory of Constantius. But as that feeble prince was destitute of personal merit, either in peace or war, as he feared his generals and distrusted his ministers, the triumph of his arms served only to establish the reign of the eunuchs over the Roman world. Those unhappy beings, the ancient production of oriental jealousy and despotism, were introduced into Greece and Rome by the contagion of Asiatic luxury. Their progress was rapid, and the eunuchs, who in the time of Augustus had been abhorred, as the monstrous retinue of an Egyptian queen, were gradually admitted into the families of matrons, of senators, and of the emperors themselves, restrained by the severe edicts of Domitian and Nerva, cherished by the pride of Diocletian, reduced to a humble station by the prudence of Constantine, they multiplied in the palaces of his degenerate sons, and insensibly acquired the knowledge, and at length the direction of the secret councils of Constantius. The aversion and contempt which mankind had so uniformly entertained for that imperfect species appears to have degraded their character, and to have rendered them almost as incapable as they were supposed to be of conceiving any generous sentiment, or of performing any worthy action. But the eunuchs were skilled in the arts of flattery and intrigue, and they alternately governed the mind of Constantius, by his fears, his indolence, and his vanity. Whilst he viewed in a deceitful mirror the fair appearance of public prosperity, He supinely permitted them to intercept the complaints of the injured provinces, to accumulate immense treasures by the sale of justice and of honours, to disgrace the most important dignities by the promotion of those who had purchased at their hands the powers of oppression, and to gratify their resentment against the few independent spirits who arrogantly refused to solicit the protection of slaves. Of these slaves the most distinguished was the chamberlain Eusebius who ruled the monarch and the palace with such absolute sway, that Constantius, according to the sarcasm of an impartial historian, possessed some credit with this haughty favorite. By his artful suggestions the emperor was persuaded to subscribe the condemnation of the unfortunate Gallus, and to add a new crime to the long list of unnatural murders, which pollute the honor of the house of Constantine. When the two nephews of Constantine, Gallus and Julian, were saved from the fury of the soldiers, the former was about twelve, and the latter about six years of age. And, as the eldest was thought to be of a sickly constitution, they obtained with the less difficulty a precarious and dependent life, from the affected pity of Constantius, who was sensible that the execution of these helpless orphans would have been esteemed by all mankind an act of the most deliberate cruelty. Different cities of Ionia and Bithynia were assigned for their places of their exile and education, but as soon as their growing years excited the jealousy of the emperor, he judged it more prudent to secure those unhappy youths in the strong castle of Massalum near Caesarea. The treatment which they experienced during a six-year's confinement was partially such as they could hope from a careful guardian, and partly such as they might dread from a suspicious tyrant. Their prison was an ancient palace, the residence of the kings of Cappadocia. The situation was pleasant, the buildings of stately, the enclosure spacious. They pursued their studies and practiced their exercises, under the tuition of the most skilful masters and the numerous household appointed to attend, or rather to guard, the nephews of Constantine, was not unworthy of the dignity of their birth. But they could not disguise to themselves that they were deprived of fortune, of freedom, and of safety, secluded from the society of all whom they could trust or esteem, and condemned to pass their melancholy hours in the company of slaves devoted to the commands of a tyrant who had already injured them beyond the hope of reconciliation. At length, however, the emergencies of the state compelled the emperor, or rather his eunuchs, to invest gallus, in the twenty-fifth year of his age, with the title of Caesar, and to cement this political connection by his marriage with the princess Constantina. After a formal interview, in which the two princes mutually engaged their faith, never to undertake anything to the prejudice of each other, they were repaired without delay to their respective stations. Constantius continued his march towards the west, and Gallus fixed his residence at Antioch. From whence, with a delegated authority, he administered the five great dioceses of the eastern prefecture. In this fortunate change the new Caesar was not unmindful of his brother Julian, who obtained the honors of his rank, the appearances of liberty, and the restitution of an ample patrimony. The writers the most indulgent to the memory of Gallus, and even Julian himself, though he wished to cast a veil over the frailties of his brother, are obliged to confess that the Caesar was incapable of reigning. Transported from a prison to a throne, he possessed neither genius nor application, nor docility to compensate for the want of knowledge and experience. A temper naturally morose and violent, instead of being corrected, was soured by solitude and adversity. The remembrance of what he had endured disposed him to retaliation, rather than to sympathy, and the ungoverned sallies of his rage were often fatal to those who approached his person, or were subject to his power. Constantina, his wife, is described not as a woman, but as one of the infernal furies tormented with an insatiate thirst of human blood. Instead of employing her influence to insinuate the mild counsels of prudence and humanity, she exasperated the fierce passions of her husband, and as she retained the vanity, though she had renounced the gentleness of her sex, a pearl necklace was esteemed an equivalent price for the murder of an innocent and virtuous nobleman. The cruelty of gallus was sometimes displayed in the undissembled violence of popular or military executions— and was sometimes disguised by the abuse of law, and the forms of judicial proceedings. The private houses of Antioch, and the places of public resort, were besieged by spies and informers, and the Caesar himself, concealed in a plebeian habit, very frequently condescended to assume that odious character. Every apartment of the palace was adorned with the instruments of death and torture, and a general consternation was diffused through the capital of Syria. The prince of the east, as if he had been conscious how much he had to fear, and how little he deserved to reign, selected for the objects of his resentment the provincials accused of some imaginary treason, and his own courtiers, whom with more reason he suspected of incensing, by their secret correspondence, the timid and suspicious mind of Constantius. But he forgot that he was depriving himself of his only support, the affection of the people, whilst he furnished the malice of his enemies with the arms of truth, and afforded the emperor the fairest pretense of exacting the forfeit of his purple and of his life. As long as the civil war suspended the fate of the Roman world, Constantius dissembled his knowledge of the weak and cruel administration to which his choice had subjected the East, and the discovery of some assassins secretly dispatched to antioch by the tyrant of gaul was employed to convince the public that the emperor and the caesar were united by the same interest and pursued by the same enemies but when the victory was decided in favour of constantius his dependent colleague became less useful and less formidable Every circumstance of his conduct was severely and suspiciously examined, and it was privately resolved either to deprive Gallus of the purple, or at least to remove him from the indolent luxury of Asia, to the hardships and dangers of a German war. The death of Theophilus, consular of the province of Syria, who, in a time of scarcity, had been massacred by the people of Antioch, with the connivance, and almost at the instigation of Gallus, was justly resented, not only as an act of wanton cruelty, but as a dangerous insult on the supreme majesty of Constantius. Two ministers of illustrious rank, Domitian the Oriental Prefect, and Montius, quester of the palace, were empowered by a special commission, to visit and reform the state of the East. They were instructed to behave towards Gallus with moderation and respect, and, by the gentlest arts of persuasion, to engage him to comply with the invitation of his brother and colleague. The rashness of the prefect disappointed those prudent measures, and hastened his own ruin, as well as that of his enemy. On arrival at Antioch, Domitian passed disdainfully before the gates of the palace, and, alleging a slight pretense of indisposition, continued several days in sullen retirement, to prepare an inflammatory memorial which he transmitted to the imperial court, Yielding at length to the pressing solicitations of Gallus, the prefect condescended to take his seat in council, but his first step was to signify a concise and haughty mandate, importing that the Caesar should immediately repair to Italy, and threatening that he himself would punish his delay or hesitation by suspending the usual allowance of his household. The nephew and daughter of Constantine, who could ill brook the insolence of a subject, expressed their resentment by instantly delivering Domitian to the custody of a guard. The quarrel still admitted of some terms of accommodation. They were rendered impracticable by the imprudent behavior of Montius, a statesman whose arts and experience were frequently betrayed by the levity of his disposition. The quester reproached Gallus in haughty language— that a prince who was scarcely authorized to remove a municipal magistrate should presume to imprison a praetorian prefect, convoked a meeting of the civil and military officers, and required them, in the name of their sovereign, to defend the person and dignity of his representatives. By this rash declaration of war, the impatient temper of Gallus was provoked to embrace the most desperate counsels. He ordered his guards to stand to their arms— assembled the populace of Antioch, and recommended to their zeal the care of his safety and revenge. His commands were too fatally obeyed. They rudely seized the prefect and the quaestor, and tying their legs together with ropes, they dragged them through the streets of the city, inflicted a thousand insults and a thousand wounds on these unhappy victims, and at last precipitated their mangled and lifeless bodies into the stream of the Orontes." After such a deed, whatever might have been the designs of Gallus, it was only in a field of battle that he could assert his innocence with any hope of success. But the mind of that prince was formed of an equal mixture of violence and weakness. Instead of assuming the title of Augustus, instead of employing in his defense the troops and treasures of the East, he suffered himself to be deceived by the affected tranquillity of Constantius who, leaving him the vain pageantry of a court, imperceptibly recalled the veteran legions from the provinces of Asia. But as it still appeared dangerous to arrest Gallus in his capital, the slow and safer arts of dissimulation were practiced with success. The frequent and pressing epistles of Constantius were filled with professions of confidence and friendship, exhorting the Caesar to discharge the duties of his high station, to relieve his colleague from a part of the public cares, and to assist the West by his presence, his counsels, and his arms. After so many reciprocal injuries Gallus had reason to fear and to distrust. But he had neglected the opportunities of flight and of resistance. He was seduced by the flattering assurances of the tribune Scudillo, who, under the semblance of a rough soldier, disguised the most artful insinuation— and he depended on the credit of his wife, Constantina, till the unseasonable death of that princess completed the ruin in which he had been involved by her impetuous passions. End of chapter 19, part 1